Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Book of Hebrews, chapter 7. So we continue our study again in the epistle to the Hebrews. I told you last time that we have now arrived at what's the really the pinnacle of this argument uh, that the author has been building since chapter 1. And he keeps trying to demonstrate to us that Christ is better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Joshua. He's even better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than uh, Abraham. He just keeps walking through here. And all of that is building towards a point. And he wants to be able to tell these discouraged believers in this little church in Hebrews, and for those also who are have made professions of their faith and and now are just are tempted to fall back again. He wants to remind them that what you have in Christ is far better than anything you thought you had before. Because everything that you had before was just a mere picture of what was to come in Christ. And what you have in Christ is the fulfillment of that picture. And as always, the real thing is always better than a picture, right? Right? I, when I'm away and I have a picture of my wife, I miss her. That's nice. It's comforting to see a picture of her, but it's not as good as the real thing, right? That's when I am with her. And that's kind of what he's going towards here. He wants to, he wants to demonstrate how much they really have. And so to demonstrate this and really work towards this argument that, that the, that Christ's high priesthood is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that you hold dear. Everything you hold dear. And so he's been building on this step by step by step. And the way that he chose to demonstrate that is by introducing us to a man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek is only mentioned in Scripture a couple times, right? Once in Genesis 14, once in Psalm 10, 110, I'm sorry, verse 4. Now you recall from last time that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He was a real person, a historical person, but his life is in Scripture as a type. It's a picture in the Old Testament of Christ, who, of course, in the New Testament. So we see lots of types, as I told you, in the Old Testament. The ark, remember, is a type of salvation, right? We uh, know from John chapter 3 that the bronze serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness, that was a picture of Christ being lifted up Many, many pictures of the Old Testament of Christ. But keep in mind, they're just pictures, not uh, nothing really compared to the fulfillment of the real thing. Now here, the mere fact that the Hebrews, the author of Hebrews chose Melchizedek tells us something, and that is that he needed to pick somebody from the Old Testament who was a real person that they would remember, that they would understand, and then be able to demonstrate that what he is proposing is from the Word of God. Now, why is that priesthood so important? And this is important as we go through the rest of the next three chapters. It's because the Jews inherently understood that you could not just have access to God any way that you chose. You could not just stroll into the presence of God any way that you like. As a matter of fact, all through Scripture, when somebody comes into the presence of God, they have the same reaction. They fall flat on their face and they cry out, Woe is me, I am a sinful person. God have mercy on me. That's what happens when you come into the presence of Christ. So they understood that inherently. Remember we looked at a couple passages. We looked at Exodus 19 when God's presence 
It wasn't just going to be in the tabernacle. It was going to be just on a mountain. And the mere fact that his presence was going to be on a mountain, remember we looked at that passage in Exodus 19, and God said, don't set foot even on the base of that mountain. Because if you do, you will surely die. And oh, by the way, don't even let your livestock touch base. Why not? Because God is holy, and his holy presence was going to be on that mountain. Second thing they understood is that not only could you not just come into the presence of God any way that you chose, secondly, you needed a mediator. You needed somebody that God said was qualified and approved to come into his presence. And even then, that person had to be chosen by God and had very strict requirements. Had to be from a certain lineage, a certain line. Had to go through certain requirements. There was cleansing rituals. They had to wear certain clothes. They had to, they had to do it in a very specific way. And we saw in number 16 what happens when you try to come into the presence of God in your own terms in the Korah rebellion, right? They said, hey, Moses, Aaron, you guys think you're pretty hot stuff? We can do what you're doing. Why are you getting all the glory? And, uh, and God responded, how? By opening up the earth and swallowing them up. Then about 15,000, just under 15,000 said, hey, that isn't very fair. And God struck them with a plague. So God has very specific requirements about how we are to come into his presence and who will mediate for us. So the author of Hebrews has set out to demonstrate in the strongest, most convincing way that Jesus not only fulfills all of the requirements of the Levitical priesthood, but that he's actually in an order much higher. That's what he's trying to show. So turn in your Bibles here at Romans, uh, Romans, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. And again, remember, in verses 1 through 3, he showed us that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. That's how he started his argument. Okay? In what ways was, uh, was Melchizedek a type of Christ? Remember, verses 1 and 2, he was a priest king. In the Levitical system, you could be a priest or a king. You couldn't be a priest king. Melchizedek was a priest king. So in that way, he was like Christ. Secondly, he uh, was had no beginning of days nor end. He was eternal. And like Christ, he is eternal. And third, thirdly, his priesthood was perpetual. And Christ's priesthood is perpetual also. has no end. And then the text tells us, in these ways, in these ways, he is like the Son of God. Now, how is Melchizedek greater than Abraham? Remember, there's two different ways he shows us in the text. The first is that Melchizedek, it's Melchizedek who blesses Abraham, and whoever is the greater blesses the lesser. And since, and since Melchizedek blesses Abraham, Melchizedek is greater. Secondly, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And again, you don't pay tithes to somebody who's not greater than you. And so then again, it shows how he is greater than Abraham. So in the first three verses, we saw that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He's a king priest. He has no beginning of end of days. He's eternally a king priest. And since there's no record of his priesthood ever ending, his priesthood is perpetual. We also saw that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because after the battle of the four kings... It is Abraham who's blessed by Melchizedek. It's Abraham who pays tithes to Melchizedek. That brought us to verses 4 through 7, which is what we looked at last week. Then in verse 4, again, I'm just reviewing here. 
He says, now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth or a tithe of the choicest spoils. So his first point is, Melchizedek was so great that even Abraham tithed to him. And remember, he starts this text off by saying, observe or consider, you might have in your translation. That word, thoreau, means to pay very close attention. It's, it's a picture of a general inspecting his troops, looking for the tiniest flaw. So the author of Hebrews is saying, pay attention here to what I'm talking about because I want you to see how Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Two words in this, in this verse that are very important. Again, patriarch. That word patriarch, patri, means father. Arche means first. He's the first father of Israel, right? And... How great was he? He was so great that Abraham gave him a tenth. Remember I told you last week that after a big victory, you would pile up all the spoils into a big pile. The king would get the top 10% of that. That's where the word tithe comes from. He would get the choicest spoils, which would be the jewels and all the small stuff that would be up all up at the top, all the gold, all the silver. So why? what makes Melchizedek receiving tithes better than the Levites receiving tithes? The author of Hebrews answers that for us in verse 5. And verse 5 told us that, and those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest office have commandment in the law to collect the tenth from the people, that is from their brethren, although they are these are descended from Abraham. So point number two is Levites are commanded in the law to receive tithes from whom? From their own countrymen, from their own brothers. In the Old Testament, the people brought tithes to the priests. They were commanded to do that in Numbers 18. And then the priest would have to take a tithe of what was given to them and give it to Aaron and his line. So they would tithe upon the tithe. But notice the priests that were receiving the tithes are not greater than the ones they received the tithes from. Remember, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek because he was greater. But the Israelites tithed to the Levites, not because they were greater. They are, these are their own brothers. They're viewed equally by God. Not One doesn't have a higher status than the other. Why did they give tithes? Because God commanded them to do it. They were compelled to do it. The reason they did that, the sons of Levi's ability to collect tithes did not come from any inherent superiority. They paid tithes not to honor the Levites, but to honor and obey the commandments of God. That's the difference, which is a contrast to what Abraham did with Melchizedek. And we saw that in the first part of verse 6. Let's look at that. He said, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham. So he says here, listen, Abraham voluntarily offered a tithe to Melchizedek. He wasn't compelled to do it. He did it because he recognized uh, his priesthood was greater. He did not receive, Melchizedek did not receive tithes from Abraham by any commandment of the law. Abraham voluntarily paid that tithe. And not only was Abraham not commanded uh, to tithe to Melchizedek, they weren't even related. Melchizedek is not an Israelite. So then he says in the verse, uh, the second part of verse 6, not only did he was he not compelled to give him a tithe and gave him a tithe, but secondly, he was blessed by the one who had the promises. So listen here. He says, listen, not only, not only 
did Abraham give tithes to Melchizedek, not only did Melchizedek receive those tithes, even though God never commanded him to do it, he said also Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and the greater always blesses the lesser. And how great a person do you have to be to bless the one whom God has already blessed? How great do you have to be to bless the one that God made a covenant with and said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you? You've got to be pretty great. So point number four, the lesser is always blessed by the greater. The one without any recorded genealogy, Melchizedek, not only received tithes voluntarily from Abraham, which he was not commanded by God to give, and to whom he had no family connection, but he also blessed Abraham, the first father of Israel, the patriarch, the same Abraham who received the promises of God. And again, what promises he's talking about? He's talking about the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, which we looked at earlier in our text. And I want you to note this point too. Abraham would have never received a blessing from Melchizedek if he didn't recognize that Melchizedek was a high priest of the most high God. If you look in, your, in the text there, he uses that text, most high God, El Elyon. That's the same terminology that Abraham uses to describe God, most high God. And so Abraham recognizes that Melchizedek is not just a high priest, not just a high priest of some pagan god, but a high priest of the god. And the only reason he paid tithes to them and the only reason he received a blessing from him is because he recognized that they worshiped the same god. And he recognized the status that Melchizedek had in God's eyes. And then verse 7, if there's any doubt whether that's all true or not, the author of Hebrews reminds us without any dispute. In other words, no sense even trying to argue about it. It's plain in Scripture. Everywhere you turn, the greater blesses the lesser. It's never any different. Without any dispute, without a doubt, don't even try to argue it is basically what that means. Okay, so those are the points that he's made so far. Now let's turn to verse 8. We want to pick up these last few verses here as we finish all of this foundational work, which leads us to the rest of the chapter. Verse 8, he says, In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. So point number 5 is that Melchizedek's perpetual priesthood could still receive tithes, but the Levite priests only receive tithes while they're in office and only while they're alive, right? I mean, if they die, they don't continue to receive tithes. That goes to the next high priest or the next priest. So the author now moves back to the discussion about tithes to bring his point. What point is he trying to make? He's trying to say that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levite priesthood, the Levitical priesthood of Aaron and Levi. The old priests were mortal men, it says. And after a few years of service to God, they would die. And then the Levites would transfer that position to the next one in line, just as God had commanded them. And they kept very detailed records about who was from what tribe, whether they were from the line of Aaron, whether they were from Levi or not. They kept very, very 
detailed records. For what reason? Because God had commanded them that only these could serve in the tabernacle. Only these could be the ones who would offer the sacrifices. Only from this line could they be the high priests. They kept very, very detailed records for that. But Melchizedek's priesthood was perpetual. It enjoyed a continual existence because it never has an end in Scripture. And since there is no recorded death of Melchizedek, nor no recorded birth of Melchizedek, that means that he is still, according to Scripture, still a great high priest, or at least the line of him is. Even though he did physically die, it's not recorded in Scripture. So the author of Hebrews is saying, if God chose not to put his death in there like he does for every other high priest, then technically his line is still alive. And Abraham paid tithes to this one whom Scripture witnessed that he lives on. And that lives on doesn't refer to the fact that he lived forever, but rather that Scripture does not record his birth or death or any of his genealogy. And in Psalm 110.4, it says that he is a priest for how long? Forever. Forever. Notice the text does not say that Melchizedek is living, but rather that Scripture witnesses that he lives on. It's Scripture that bears this testimony that witnesses the truth of that statement. Why does he use this word witness or testify? He uses this seven times in the next couple chapters. Witness, testify, witness, testify, witness. And every time he uses that word, he's using it in reference to something that God said in the Old Testament. Why does he keep doing that? Why does he keep saying, Scripture testifies, Scripture witnesses, Scripture testifies? Because he wants them to know and see that this was God's plan all along. That the, even the Levitical priesthood, even all their offerings and their sacrifices and their rituals all, and the feasts, all of that was pointing to Christ. And he says, I want to be able to show you from the scriptures that this was God's plan all along. This is not just me making something up. This is what God had said he would do thousands of years before it actually happened. All right, then let's look at the author's final point in this section, which is in verses 9 and 10. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So, and these verses 9 and 10 are just one sentence in the original language. They're not two separate. So they're one thought if you will. One sentence. Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek through his ancestor Abraham. And since Abraham, since the lesser always ties to the greater, he's trying to say Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. How's he going to say that? All right, here we go. This is his main point. He's moving towards it. Notice how the author of Hebrews starts this sentence off. So to speak, or one might say, he's really translating this as, do not take this literally, but understand this is how it's projected. Why does he begin like that? The author senses that this might seem a bit strange to some of those who were listening, which is why he begins with this so-to-speak opening. 
or one might say. That phrase is not found anywhere else in the New Testament, only here. What is it that would seem a bit unorthodox to them? You know what would seem unorthodox? Would be this idea that Abraham's descendants are identified in their forefather. Specifically, that Levi himself could be considered to have paid tithes to Melchizedek since he wasn't even born yet. How could you say, that'd be like saying that I did something today and my grandchildren, it'd be the same as if they did it, whatever I did today. That's the argument that he's making. It's like, whoa, that seems a little bit strange to me. How can it be that Levi could be considered to pay tithes to Melchizedek just by his association that he was present, so to speak, in the genes of his, of his great-grandfather Abraham? How can that be? Even though Levi had not yet been born when Abraham paid the tithes, He's saying we could view him as paying ties to Melchizedek by, by the manner of his association of ancestry. He's related. And since he's related and he's one of his ancestors, just his grandfather did it be the same as you did it. So in some genetic sense, Levi, great-grandson of Abraham, actually also paid ties to Melchizedek since he was at the time a part of Abraham's genetic line which would then produce Isaac, and then Jacob, and then ultimately Levi. That's his argument. So the payment of tithes by Abraham could be associated with his offspring, Levi, and then, of course, to all the priesthood, since all the priests come from the line of Levi. Now, this type of association, that seems a bit strange to us in our society, doesn't it? Because we think, hey, I sinned, I'm accountable for it, I get that part. But what do you mean, I sinned so everybody else has to pay the price? Or they sinned and so I have to suffer the consequences? In our individualistic society, we would say, that's not fair. I didn't do that. Why do I have to pay the price for what that person did? So that seems a bit strange to us that somehow we're linked to our ancestors and the decisions that they made and that we have to then suffer the consequences of that. But biblically speaking, this should not seem that strange to us at all since we see examples of that all throughout Scripture. In Hebrew thought, the idea that a father or mother could act independently of their children without their children bearing either the reward or the effects of their decisions, would be completely foreign to them. In Hebrew thought, and actually in most of the world's thought, what you do has an effect on your family, who you're in line with, who you're related to. Sometimes you'll hear someone say, I could never do that because it would bring shame on my entire family. In our society, we don't think that way because we think we're so individualistic, we don't think that way. But in Hebrew thought, and actually in a lot of the world, in Eastern thought for sure, what I do has an effect on all of my family. Everybody either reaps the rewards of my decisions or pays the consequences. So let's look at a couple examples of that. Turn to Genesis chapter 25. 
Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25, verse 23. So the Lord said to her, There are two nations, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Were there really two nations? Well, there were, if you consider their line, their genetic line, but there really were two individual babies in there. But in Hebrew thought, each one of those would have a line of descendants, and those two line of descendants is what he's talking about. That's the same idea. Now go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Keep moving to your right. Chapter 4, verse 10. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. There's only one problem here. These are not the same Israelites who were at Mount Horeb. They're from Exodus 19. This was long before. This group here is post-wilderness wanderings. That group there was before. That whole generation died in the wilderness. So how is it? How could they possibly have been there? They were there in the genetic line of those who were there. That's how they would think. Now you would say... Can we see an example of that in the New Testament, or is that just the Hebrews? Turn to Romans chapter 5. This is Paul's argument, isn't it? This is Paul's argument here in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Notice here, Paul declares that the whole human race has sinned in Adam. That's the same thought, the same process. And that death, therefore, is universal because of Adam's sin. So Paul sees the whole human race as potentially present in Adam when Adam sinned and therefore participates with him in the aftermath of that sin. Now, time won't permit me to get into Romans chapter 5 in great detail, but let me just give you a quick little snapshot of what Romans 5 means. Here's what it means. Adam's sin somehow brought condemnation upon all mankind. We are all sinners because Adam sinned. The good news is that Christ's sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection makes all those who are in him righteous or are right standing to God. Christ is able to reverse the effects of Adam's sin. But how is it that we become participants in Adam's sin or in Christ's saving work? You are actually participants because of your ancestral association, if you will. It's called seminal headship. In other words, 
one representative represented all of mankind, just like all those in faith who are children of God are represented by Christ. You have the first Adam and the second Adam, if you will. And just as Aaron was in Abraham when he offered a tithe to Melchizedek, we were in Adam when he sinned, and all those who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins are in Christ when he died and rose again. So we are freed from sin and our new creations in Christ. That's important for you to remember. Just a little nugget, because when we get to chapters 8, 9, and 10, you're going to understand how important it is that one person can represent us all and what we have available to us in Christ. That's what he's building towards. So the author's reasoning is that the offspring of Abraham, especially Levi, who share in his promises, also share in Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek. And so the payment of tithes by Levi through Abraham becomes more evident than Levi's right to receive tithes from others. And since Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek through his ancestor Abraham, and since the lesser always tithes to the greater, then that would clearly show the superiority of Melchizedek and his line to Abraham and his line. And if, if Melchizedek is superior to Levi, then Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levite priesthood. That's what he's been driving at all along. Why is that so important? Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Look at verse 11. This is what we'll look at next week. Because he's going to ask the question that we've been asking for a few weeks now. Why is this important? Why do I need to know this? Why is this so important that I understand he's a type? Why is it so important that I understand that Melchizedek's order is greater than Levite's? Look, he asked that question. Verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? He's going to say, okay, great. You've shown that Melchizedek priesthood is greater than the Levite priesthood. Fine. Why is that so important? Next week, he starts to lay that out and show you the difference between what they thought they had and what they really have in Christ. And just like that, Melchizedek is gone. Just like that. We see him once in Genesis, we see him once in Psalm 110, we see him mentioned a couple times in the book of Hebrews, and then we don't hear from him again, other than to say that Christ is from that order. That's it. He'll not appear again. What are the significances of this then for us? Here's what I want you to take away from all that we've covered so far. And again, this is just foundation for the good stuff, the best stuff coming up. First of all, over and over, the argument through this passage is Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Now, we don't understand why yet, but we just know that that's what he keeps telling us. And Aaron's priesthood descended from Abraham. Melchizedek's priesthood did not. Abraham had to tie to Melchizedek. And by that, author, by that argument, the author of Hebrews shows that being in the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to being in the priesthood of the Levites. And all that is leading up to verse 11 in chapter 7. All of the sort of the 
preface of the argument that the author is going to put forth in chapter 7, verse 11 to the end of the chapter. So it's very important that you get this point, that Jesus, Melchizedek, and priesthood is superior to the priesthood of the Levites. That's what he wants you to know. He took you a long way around to show you that, but that's what he wants you to leave you with, that the priesthood that Jesus is a part of is far greater than the priesthood of the Levites. Why was that so important? Because the Jews and the Israelites understood that they could not just come into the presence of God and that they needed a mediator. Who was that mediator under the law? It was the priests. The priests are the ones who offered their sacrifice. The priest is the one. The high priest once a year would come in to the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. They understood they needed that mediator. And God said it was supposed to be the Levites. God said it was supposed to be from Aaron. So why do you keep telling me that Christ is better? So he has to show them why that's so important. Secondly, you see this idea of ancestral association or I'm, I get the results or pay the price from what my ancestors did. And that's a difficult doctrine for us to understand, but it simply means that Adam's sin, again, brings condemnation. We are all sinners because Adam's sin. But the good news is that Christ's sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection makes all of us who are in Christ righteous. That's what he wants us to know. Now, understanding that will become even more important at Christ's priestly ministry for us. But for now, all of this groundwork is building towards something. And that something is a new priesthood with a new high priest who is righteous and eternal and brings peace to all who are in his kingdom. He also gives all who believe in him continual access to God. Continual access. And an advocate for them who never ceases. That's the good news the author of Hebrews wants us to take away so far. He wants you to see, beloved, you have a great high priest. And you have a great high priest who's unlike any other high priest. He's eternal. His priesthood never ends. And because of your faith in him, you have continual access to God. That's something the Israelites prayed for wished for, hoped for, but the law demonstrated to them that they could not do it on their own terms. And just like they couldn't do it on their own terms, neither can we. We don't get to stroll into the presence of God any way that we choose. We don't get to tell, that, tell God that I'm going to obey these things in my life and disregard those things in my life. And I know your word tells me that I shouldn't do that, but I'm going to choose to do that anyway. The author of Hebrews says, they understood that well. We need to understand that well also. But praise be to God, we have a mediator who has been tempted in all things, just like we are, and yet without sin. That, my friends, is the good news. What we have in Christ is far better than just a picture of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for as we walk through this text. And Lord, it's been heavy. It's heavy doctrinally. It's heavy theologically. 
So, Lord, we've had to kind of slug our way through it. It's been some heavy lifting, and we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. But now I pray, Lord, with that foundation set as we move into why we needed to understand that. I pray, Lord, that we would see how glorious it is to have our great high priest, one who has been tempted in all things yet without sin, one who we can approach his throne of grace and find mercy and receive grace in our time of need. Oh, Lord, what a wonderful truth that is. And so, Father, for all those who are here today, Lord, some are hurting physically, some emotionally, some perhaps even spiritually. Father, I pray that they would turn to you, that they would turn to you and find the comfort at your throne of grace, that they would go with confidence knowing that they have continual access to you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is good news. And for that, Lord, we cling to your truth and we rejoice in all that you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.